You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof, and is cloven-footed, and chews the cud, among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud, or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof, and is cloven-footed, but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. These you may eat of all that are in the waters, everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales or the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. And these you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, and the bat. All winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet, with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat, the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind. But all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. And by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcasses shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every animal that parts the hoof but is not cloven-footed or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean. And all that walk on their paws among the animals that go on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and he who carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. They are unclean to you. And these are unclean to you among the swarming things that swarm on the ground. The mole, rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, 
the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that swarm. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until the evening, and anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean, whether it is an article of wood or a garment or a skin or a sack, any article that is used for any purpose. It must be put into water, and it shall be unclean until the evening. Then it shall be clean. And if any of them falls into any earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean, and you shall break it. Any food in it that could be eaten, on which water comes, shall be unclean. And all drink that could be drunk from every such vessel shall be unclean. And everything on which any part of their carcass falls shall be unclean. Whether oven or stove, it shall be broken in pieces. They are unclean and shall remain unclean for you. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern holding water shall be clean, but whoever touches a carcass in them shall be unclean. And if any part of their carcass falls upon any seed grain that is to be sown, it is clean. But if water is put on the seed and any part of their carcass falls on it, it is unclean to you. And if any animal which you may eat dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours, or whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat, for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. For I am Yahweh your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am Yahweh who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 601 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, April 20th, 2023, and that was a reading from Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 11, to be more specific, the entirety of the chapter, having to do with clean and unclean animals. Now, what's curious about this is that sometimes the distinctions between certain kinds of animals 
God is telling Israel that they can eat or they can't eat seems arbitrary to me. Now, I say that, and I am being honest, I say it seems arbitrary because I don't quite understand what the difference would be. But that said, I trust that there has to be a difference. There has to be a meaningful distinction between these animals for God to tell Moses and Aaron to tell Israel, this is what you are allowed to eat. This is what you are not allowed to eat. I trust that God knows what the difference is and he knows his purpose there. And I trust that his purpose is good here when he tells us you can and you can't. Also note, and we won't spend a lot of time on this, but just briefly in passing because it's relevant, note that it's not until after the great deluge, the flood in Genesis that God saved Noah and his family and two of every other kind of creature from with the ark. It's not until after that flood that God tells Noah and his sons and their wives that they are permitted to eat the animals. What does that mean? I don't know. (laughs) There are several possibilities, but one of them is that people just didn't eat animals at all before the flood. I doubt that. I would hazard the guess that people did eat animals before the flood and that animals ate each other before the flood because we see that the reason God sends the flood is because the earth was filled with violence. So I reason from that that you certainly have these creatures killing each other and you have people killing each other and you have these creatures killing people and you have people killing these creatures, these animals that God has made, but they don't have permission. People don't to eat the animals. That that would be my speculation. But like I said, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. Just a note in passing that also elsewhere in scripture, we see that sin brought death into the world. Also that the creation is subjected to futility, not willingly, not of its own volition, but by the sin of man. The sin of one man, Adam, brought death into creation. I am a young earth creationist. I believe that the days of creation in Genesis are describing six literal 24-hour periods in consecutive fashion, not spaced out over millions and billions of years like secular scientists maintain in the mainstream. I maintain that the six days of creation in Genesis are consecutive days and When God sees that his creation is very good, when he sees the very goodness of all that he has made, all that he has made, including mankind in the garden, he is not seeing death and dying and violence like we see today or like filled the earth before God sent the great flood. But then you fast forward and you do have the great flood and you have God telling Noah and his family, that they are permitted to take the animals for food. And then you fast forward to here in Leviticus and you have God saying, some of these animals you're allowed to eat, some of these animals you're not allowed to eat. And this has to do with holiness. Now, some will say that God's reason is about us. His reason is about our health, our not getting sick and dying, and 
I don't disagree that that is in the mix here, but that's not the reason God gives for why certain animals are clean and some are unclean. And this category of clean and unclean is not necessarily to be confused with mere physical sanitation or just microbes and bacteria and all that kind of stuff, I don't believe. There is a spiritual component here as well as a physical component. We don't have to choose one or the other. It can be both. And in fact, we see throughout scripture, it is supposed to be regarded as both and. It's not only a physical creation that God has made. He has also made that which is spiritual. He himself is spirit, and those who worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth, not just bodily, not just going through the motions, not just checking boxes, not just engaging in certain behavior and not engaging in others. He cares about what happens in the internal world of our thoughts, our intentions, our attitudes. I believe that there is a symbolism, there's a figurative or spiritual significance to why some animals are said to be clean and some are said to be unclean, why some you are allowed to eat, and others, even if you just touch them when they're dead, you are unclean. Don't even touch them when they're unclean. And if when they're dead, something that you have touches them, well, then either it needs to be thrown out entirely and destroyed because it can't be made clean again, or there's going to be a process for making it clean again, or there's going to be a waiting period, a cool-down period. Consider also, I mean, this is a bit of a mixed bag, and it is speculative, I confess, but if it helps, consider also that we have various minerals in the world. There are various elements that are mineral that make up the world and the galaxy and the the known universe. Put it that way. Look at a periodic table and you will see carbon, for instance. You'll see iron, for instance. You'll see gold, for instance. These are different substances. You'll also see that some of the substances, some of the elements on the periodic table are what we call radioactive. And so when it comes to handling a rock that is not radioactive versus handling a rock that is highly radioactive, what do we say? We say, hey, don't touch that. Or don't touch that without special equipment on, special PPE on. Don't handle that or it's going to make you very sick and eventually it'll kill you. Don't touch that radioactive mineral there or rock there. It's going to make you sick and and then you'll die. Well, maybe that's kind of a type of distinction here between the clean and unclean animals. There's something about the unclean animals that God wants us to keep our distance from. It's not that he hasn't made them, but maybe there's a corruption there since the fall that has affected these animals differently than man. Or maybe there just is a, again, spiritual significance that God does not want us associating ourselves with. There's the old adage, you are what you eat. So if you are eating really, really bad food, well, then your health is going to be really, really bad. If you're eating really good quality food that is nutrient dense, as they say, 
and that gives you a balance of various minerals and vitamins and nutrients and proteins, et cetera, then you're going to be healthy. And so maybe some of these animals, it's a question of you are what you eat. And if you eat those animals, then you are going to be like them. You're going to take what goes into making them into your body. Your body's going to then make your body more similar to those animals than God wants his people who are holy and set apart and supposed to be image bearers of him to the nations to be. You know, there's the funny movie, Nacho Libre, starring Jack Black, that comes to mind, where he is a poor fighter. He is not very skilled. And so then in the course of events, he's trying to figure out how to be a better fighter so that he can win this big wrestling tournament championship competition and win some money, which he can then use to take better care of uh, orphans at the orphanage where he is. And what do they come up with? A plan for him to eat an eagle's eggs so that he will have eagle powers, right? And it's funny, right? And it's don't take it too seriously, but it's it's a funny picture possibly of what might be in the mix here, symbolically, figuratively, maybe even also <laughs> physically, with why God says don't eat certain animals and you can eat other animals. Also too, let's note, there's a category here for bugs. There's a category for hooved animals, right? Some of them are clean. Some of them are not clean. Here's how you know. Here's the difference. Or at least here are the distinctions between those animals. Maybe not necessarily why those distinctions are important to God. We don't have that necessarily. But here are the types of distinctions between these animals that you should take note of when deciding what to have for dinner tonight. Also, fish or creatures that come from the rivers and the oceans and the seas. There's also for the birds. Here's the kinds of birds I don't want you to eat. Actually, God doesn't want us to eat the eagles we see here or the vultures or the falcons or the hawks or the ostriches or seagulls or owls. He says, don't eat any of those. Those are unclean for you. Also herons, also bats, also storks. Don't eat them. Don't eat those birds. They're unclean to you. But then we get into bugs and it's like, wait a second, all bugs are unclean. I'm pretty sure. Right, God? And that's not what he says. That's not what God tells Moses and Aaron to say to the people. That's not what we read. There are some bugs that we are told are permissible according to Leviticus 11. Not to say that we're under Leviticus 11, but those who adhere to this at all might also adhere to all of it, any part of it, all of it, package deal. Right now, there is this business going around stories of bug ingredients, bug parts, bug powder or bug flour being promoted as a substitute for cows or chickens. And this is part of the push for combating climate change that we're being encouraged to as they say, eat the bugs. Klaus Schwab and his German accent, eat the bugs. We're being encouraged to eat the bugs. And there's a lot of us in the West who say, nah, no, I don't want to. I don't want to. And you can't make me. 
This is not eat your broccoli. This is eat the bugs. And I don't eat bugs. It's something I don't do. I'll take a steak, please. And it's worth noting for Christians, you know, one, we don't want to be told you must eat this thing. Eat it. Because that's gross. That's a gross relationship to have with corporations who sell you your food or grocery stores who sell you your food, various other people who are in the supply chain mix there. Uh, it's also a gross relationship to have with your government. If your government starts saying, you will eat this, it's like, what in the world just happened? You're being totalitarian. You're being a tyrant right now when you're going to try and tell me what I have to eat. No, thank you. No, thank you. And not just no in some of these cases. Hell no. (laughs) Not just no. Hell no. But I say that, and now I need to balance that being my sentiment by explaining why I don't think that's the relationship we should have with our human government. God has the authority to tell us what we can eat and what we can't eat, what we will eat and what we won't eat. God has that authority. And when God himself is sparing, I I would say, when he is restrained in how much he tells us to eat and not eat and when and why and how, And it's not all the time telling us, you will eat this, you won't eat that. When there are more the exception than the rule cases in the Bible where God is giving instruction for diet, then who is this guy, this fellow human being, tell me, you will eat this, you won't eat that. What does it remind you of, in other words? You know, it's one thing when God tells Moses and Aaron say to the people this thing that I am telling you. But apart from that, what do we find? We have the youths in Babylonian captivity, in the Babylonian court, being trained for civil service in the Babylonian empire, being given the king's food, and then saying, actually, there are things here that are not clean for us, that are not permissible, which God has told us not to eat. And may we please have a different diet that would allow us to have a good conscience. They ask it very respectfully, but also they are in captivity. They are a conquered people or young men who hail from a conquered people. And when we start being told by corporations and NGOs and supranational organizations like the WEF, Uh, or anyone else, really, just humanly speaking, you are going to eat this now. There's a power grab that we should perceive in that. There's an overextension of what would be proper for them to be telling us or for them to be expecting in the way of an exercise of their authority, a legitimate exercise of their authority, in my strongly held opinion. But there was an article from a couple of years ago at theguardian.com by a certain Richard Godwin. I, As I was looking for information on this whole idea of normalizing the eating of bugs, which has not been a normal thing for European peoples, to my knowledge. It's not been a normal thing for Americans, to my knowledge. If we want to save the planet, the future of food is insects. That's what he wrote May 8th, 2021. And I'll put a link 
in the description for this podcast episode, just so you can get something of a taste, if you will, for the kind of argument that's being made. But suffice to say, there are people who are writing in major news outlets, major journals and periodicals for a few years now that this is what we have to do, not because this is what we want to do, not because this is what we would like to do, but we have to, right? We have to do this thing in order to save the planet. That is to say, this is a package deal with the shutting down of power plants and the forbidding in the coming years of purchasing internal combustion engine vehicles or other tools, other implements, other equipment that would run on gas or diesel. This is of a piece with your rising electricity costs and costs for water. There's a comprehensive push to re-engineer all of society, supposedly to combat climate change, supposedly to save the planet. But we should understand that this is not all benefit. This is cost. And the cost is not going to just be financial. Like you spend some money and it's more expensive in terms of what comes out of your checking account or what goes on your credit card. It's more expensive that way. There's also a cost in terms of reframing the relationship of people to their government or to the corporations that they are customers of, the businesses that they shop at, etc. Also, too, what if it turned out <laughs> that bugs feel pain? What if it turned out that, hey, you know what? We're eating too many of the bugs, and it's not fair to the bugs. They feel pain, and so we shouldn't eat them either. What if that's the next thing? PETA, for several years, has put advertisements and carried out demonstrations, big publicity stunts, to shock the public conscience into not using animal byproducts, not eating meat. If you even just briefly survey, some of them are very disturbing. Some of the images that will come up if you Google PETA ads, because what they'll do is they will show people, famous celebrities, as if they were animals that had been slaughtered for our consumption. Uh, one <clears throat> features Noah Cyrus looking like she's in the process of being dissected. And the caption is, I am not a classroom experiment. And this is supposed to shock your conscience when it comes to frogs, for instance, being dissected in school classrooms. That's inhumane. That's evil. That's bad. You should feel really bad because you are bad if you are dissecting animals for science. There's another advertisement I'm looking at right now of Joaquin Phoenix, famous actor. He played the evil emperor in the movie Gladiator, for instance. You might know him from that. He was also the younger brother in M. Night Shyamalan's Signs. He was also the protagonist in M. Night Shyamalan's the Village, I'm looking at an advertisement with him and a chicken, and the caption is, we are all animals. Don't eat animals, we are all animals. And what they want you to associate is the eating of animals with the eating of people. 
if you wouldn't eat a person, then you shouldn't eat animals either because people are just another kind of animal. They have other advertisements, other shocking images, like one of Bugs Bunny lying in a pool of blood, having been skinned because his skin is going to be used to make a fur coat or some such. They have one of a teddy bear looking as though it's being tortured in some kind of a horror movie. And that's, again, to raise awareness about experimentation on animals. If you wouldn't do this to your beloved teddy bear as a child, then we shouldn't do this to animals. We shouldn't experiment on them for science. Perhaps the oddest one is one of a cow in an action sequence chomping down on a very colorful parrot trying to fly away. And you can see spatterings of feathers and blood and viscera because this cow has just grabbed a parrot out of the air. And of course, this parrot is done for. This parrot's not going to make it, clearly. And this bull is, it would seem, going to eat the parrot. And the caption is, eating meat kills more animals than you think. So you're supposed to understand that for you to eat cows, by extension, leads to the deforestation of the Amazon and the killing of parrots. Isn't this a beautiful parrot? You monster. How dare you eat that hamburger? How dare you eat that steak? Don't you know what the cost is for that? Uh, They don't just stop there though, right? They don't just stop with the eating of meat or experimentation, scientific experimentation on animals or dissections. There's one here from PETA, not your mom, not your milk. And it shows two cows, a mama cow and a calf. And the lesson is supposed to be that that's not right, that you would be stealing this calf's milk when you buy a gallon of milk at the grocery store and on and on and on. And and what it is really is it is a collapsing of the distinction, not just between humankind and the animals, but also the whole creature creator distinction. Because where do we get this idea as Christians that man is not just another animal? We get it from God's word that God made man in his image after his likeness. That's what God says in his word, that he made us in his image after his likeness. We also see in his word, as I mentioned in Genesis, God telling Noah and his family that he gives to them the animals for food as well. Not just the plants, not just the fruit of the trees, not just the grains, but the animals as well. And some animals we see here in Leviticus are unclean, according to God, for his people to eat. He wants them to be holy, so don't eat these animals. But we don't see a general prohibition on the eating of meat. And we also don't see, at least when it is as it should be, we don't see a collapsing of the distinction between mankind and the animals. We might see some analogies or some metaphors. We might see a symbolic comparison between certain kinds of people and certain kinds of animals, but we are not supposed to treat one another as a general rule. We're not supposed to treat one another the way we would animals. And also inversely, we're not supposed to be treating the animals like we would people because at root, that's a rejection of, that's a choice to disbelieve what God said about man. 
That's a rejection of biblical anthropology to do that. But moving on, suppose we were to say man is an animal and we were to reject the authority of God's word and just have our way with it, do whatever we please with it, either completely throw it out or just use it to promote our agenda or our goals, what we believe to be best politically, what we just feel. I'm going to play a short audio clip here from a sermon coming out of the state of Michigan, an Easter sermon by a certain Chris Rowe of Fountain Street Church in Grand Rapids. And without comment to preface, I will play the clip and then I will speak to what he has claimed, what he is teaching, what he is telling his congregation. Here's cut one. Take a listen. But a new movement was born in the name of reproductive freedom, only this time it was a movement to see to it that lawmakers in Lansing would take away the archaic, draconian, and unjust laws from our state constitution, still left unchecked and unaddressed from 1931. And this past Wednesday, I actually got to witness the resurrection. I had the honor and the privilege and the responsibility of representing this church in the room where Governor Whitmer signed the bill into law repealing that unloving and unjust law, taking it out of our Constitution and making this a safer and more loving nation, or state rather, I wish, state for all. <laughs> and that is the resurrection. And that is the good news of Easter, even for us skeptical Fountain Streeters. <clears throat> mm. Cut. <laughs> cut, cut, cut. Uh, this is heretical and false teaching and demonic. And this guy is not a Christian. He is not of God. He is not delivering the good news on an Easter Sunday. This is abominable, and may God have mercy on his soul. May God have mercy on the souls of those who are looking to him for guidance and leadership. But it does highlight a broader point that we are getting into in this podcast episode with regards to haughtiness, with regards to arrogance, with regards to what our stance should be on the social and political questions of our day, it is important that we have the mind of Christ because the alternative is that we can be taken captive by vain and human philosophy, for one thing. It is also something to watch out for that vain ambition and selfish conceit would creep in. Conservative Christians in America get reminded of that very often. My question would be, are progressive Christians similarly put on notice in those regards? Actually, I borrow that clip that I just played for you from a write-up at Not to Be by Peter Heck, titled, This May Be the Most Blasphemous Sermon Ever Delivered. But he points out, and I quote, one thing I've noticed about public hand-wringing over the threat of Christian nationalism and danger of blending God's agenda with political idolatry is that it's a one-way street. I would agree with that. I would agree that the energy is expended disproportionately 
to tell conservative Christians in America to watch our tone, to be careful of the claims that we're making, to rightly handle the word of truth, to always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect. We are told that, and it does not seem as though equal energy is applied to progressive Christians, to woke Christians. From what I have seen and what I've read, there's a certain contingent that is doing that, and the mainstream of American evangelicalism isn't. The circles that I run in do tend to be on notice for liberal theology, progressive theology. That's part of the reason why I run in those circles, because that is the larger danger posed to us over the last century, certainly over the last two decades. But for all of the stern warnings that conservative Christians get about not being overly harsh or needing to not fight culture wars because we need to be preaching the gospel, it's important to recognize that these are two-way streets. If the Christians in America are not speaking into these situations in a clear way, in light of God's word, then these ideas that are out there in broader society will backfeed into the church, and they do, and they are, and they will even take to the pulpit and preach a false gospel like this preacher in Grand Rapids is taking to the pulpit to preach abortion and to liken repealing laws against abortion from 1931, likening the repealing of those laws to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I play the clip and I bring this to your attention because you wouldn't believe it if I just told it to you. You can't hardly imagine, I would hope, that someone would do this with the gospel message, they would do this with scripture, but then you need to believe that from the beginning, Satan was a liar and a father of lies, and that he twisted what God said. Even when he came to tempt Jesus in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights after Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River, and before Jesus really launched into his public ministry, before being crucified, before being arrested and flogged and falsely accused and publicly humiliated, before Christ died and was buried and rose again on the third day, Satan came to him and tempted him, misquoting God, misquoting God's word. And the response from Jesus was, it is written, it is written, it is written. And that should be our response as well. And it's not arrogant for us to have that as a response and to have it be confidently spoken, clear, emphatic. It should be gentle and respectful. We should put away all bitterness, envy, wrath. We should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, for the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God requires of us. But there is a point at which it is appropriate to be angry at the mishandling of the gospel, the misrepresentation of Christ. It's not just Christianity that is being misrepresented here. It is Christ himself. It is God who's being misrepresented and lied about. And we have to be clear about that. We have to be very, very clear about that. 
this is unclean, what is being said from a pulpit in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and we shouldn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. But speaking of clean and unclean, and what we are more likely to think goes in those categories in our day. We talk a lot about energy in this day. That is of a piece with the campaign to combat climate change and to re-engineer the whole world, restructure society, whole nations, whole peoples and cultures, to reframe all of our thinking and attitudes about creation, about the world that we live in, about our place in it relative the rest of the natural order that God has put in place. There's an article from the Billings Gazette written by Ted McDermott, published April 16th, 2023, titled, Despite Push for Renewable Electricity Coal Habit Proves Hard to Break. And I'll include a link, as with the rest, in the description for this podcast episode. You can go and read this for yourself. But just the headline gives me a segue because what has been contrasted for us in our day is clean energy and unclean energy or clean energy and dirty energy. And I would suggest to you likening the conversation around energy to Leviticus chapter 11 and being told which animals are clean and unclean. And I would ask you the question, do we take more seriously very human distinctions in our day regarding which types of energy are clean and unclean. Do we take that more seriously? Do we assign more weight emotionally, intellectually, spiritually to claims that coal or oil or gas are unclean energy and that solar and wind and hydro are clean? Do we assign more weight to that than we do when God says to his people in Leviticus, these are the clean animals you are allowed to eat. These are the unclean animals you are not allowed to eat. That's my question. Do we assign more weight to human agencies today who similarly seem to be spotting differences and distinctions, not just in a material sense, but also in a moral sense? There's a book, which I have on my reading list, which I intend to read this year, called The Case for Fossil Fuels, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, written by a certain Alex Epstein, who, by the way, the left, if you're not aware of this, the left has been trying to dig up dirt on him to destroy him and portray him as a racist. Of course, what else? What better way to shut up a guy about fossil fuels and making a moral case for fossil fuels than to portray him as an inherently immoral person for saying things which could be construed as racist, which I've heard some of the quotes that have been quoted to him in public hearings by Democrats, and I do not take them to be racist sayings, but the Democrats want them to be racist sayings so that they can ignore him on fossil fuels. When he makes a compelling case on fossil fuels, let's just shift the argument to something totally unrelated regarding race, and we think we can win. We think we can beat him there and discredit him thoroughly and entirely and discredit the whole moral case for fossil fuels, regardless of who would communicate it, if we just call the whole lot who is arguing in defense of coal, natural gas, oil, 
if we can label the whole lot racist, then we don't have to listen to them. We don't have to consider what they have to say. We don't have to take them seriously. We don't have to treat them with respect. We don't have to, we don't have to give them a seat at the table or permit them to speak publicly. In fact, we can prohibit them because now we have a moral case for silencing them. That's what's going on there. But he writes The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which I hope to read in the coming weeks, at least, maybe sooner. And that is a response to a moral case for renewable energy. It's not just being presented as an option. It's being presented as a mandate. You will put solar panels on your house. You will drive an electric vehicle. You will pay higher electricity costs if that's what it takes for us to save the planet. It's a moral case. It's a spiritual war as the left sees it. And it's important for us to recognize that there are metaphysical claims that are being made that at root, we would have to either admit are a rejection of the authority of God's word or a false representation of God's character and who he is and who he has made us to be and what his will is. Either it's a denial that he exists or has any authority over us, which is satanic, or it is a false presentation of what he has said, what his intentions are, in which case it's also satanic. Either way, we shouldn't be assigning more weight to arbitrary distinctions between clean and unclean, not just from a, hey, which one pollutes the environment standpoint, but when it enters into the realm of the moral law, what we're really talking about as Christians is God's law. And when we start talking about God's law, but we're not going back to his word, and you can't go back to his word and say, it is written, it is written, it is written, then what has happened to our spiritual condition? What has happened to the health of our Christian conversation, our Christian thinking, our Christian life and thought is all wrapped up today in how we handle these things. Do we believe that there was a very goodness to God's creation in the beginning? Do we believe that there was a very goodness to God giving the dominion mandate and saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it? That's what's being challenged here. And we have to be clear on what the answer should be to that challenge. Another arena in which this is being challenged, speaking of clean and unclean, as categories, Benny Johnson recently interviewed Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to talk, among other things, about transgenderism. And I'll play here, cut two for you. This one's just under two minutes long, not terribly long. But here is how that conversation went. And then I'll have some thoughts for you to share on the back end. Asking about the greater issue of transgenderism, Dylan Mulvaney, of course, is what kicked all of this off. What do you think about men taking the role of women and taking really women's, women's places in advertising, in sports, playing against them? And this seems like an existential threat to women. Uh, well, and total as fathers I mean, of daughters. have a swimmer that competes on the men's team for three years at Penn and then switches to the women's team and then wins the 500 yard freestyle national championship for women. 
when you're mediocre male swimmer and now you win the women's and so you had a second place finisher she was actually from sarasota she should have been the national champion i did a proclamation from our office saying she was the best woman swimmer yes. in 500 yard because she was and so some of this is yes it's taking away opportunities in athletics and some other stuff and that's really really important but i think there's also just the issue of are we going to be a society based on truth or are we going to be a society based on deceit and if you take a man and they dress up as a woman and you tell me I have to accept that they're a woman, then you're asking me to be complicit in a lie. And I just refuse to do that. So we've got to tell the truth. Uh, I think, you know, the truth will set you free. And let's just be honest about what's going on here. That swimmer was not the best women's 500 yard champion. Okay, the number two one was the best women. So that's just the bottom line. But you know, I've got six year old daughter, five year old son, three year old daughter. The three year old just started T ball. She's whacking the really? ball. Yeah. They're good athletes. <laughs> they like to do different things. So you want to have opportunities. And we got on this very early in Florida. We did this a couple years ago where we did the women's sports protection. So that's been the law here for, for several years now. <clears throat> and kudos, kudos, glory, <laughs> glory, glory, hallelujah for that. Uh, this is why I would love to see Ron DeSantis run for president in 2024. And I would love to see him be the next president of the United States. This is why. Uh, that really boiled it down succinctly and neatly and clearly and without bitterness or resentment or any malice that's apparent to me it really does come down to us being told to be complicit in a lie. That's what it amounts to. And we should likewise refuse to do that, like Ron DeSantis is. I refuse to do that. I refuse to affirm something I know to be false and an injustice of sorts. I refuse to be a party to that. I refuse to be complicit in that. We need to have that same kind of courage because we're supposed to, as Christians, rightly handle the word of truth. We are, we're called to it. We are called to rightly handle the word of truth. How can we say we are rightly handling the word of truth? If we agree with things that we know to be patently false regarding maleness and femaleness from God's word and even just from biology. In the first epistle to the Corinthians in the New Testament, you have a man who is living flagrantly in sin with his father's wife, and everyone knows about it. And when Paul writes to Corinth, he challenges them on their laxity, their passivity. He tells them to put the man out of fellowship and hand him over to Satan for a time. And the idea is not to destroy the man but to wake him up, to save his soul ultimately, because what he is doing is not good and he will not inherit the kingdom if he practices what he is practicing. And more to the point, his continued fellowship without repentance for this very known sin, very not secret sin, will leaven the whole loaf. It will spread like gangrene to the rest of the church and corrupt their testimony before outsiders. It will make them stink. Paul even says, the pagans know that this is wrong. Even the pagans know that this is wrong and shameful. 
Is there not any among you who has wisdom to judge these matters? Paul asks at one point. Don't you know that we'll judge angels? How much more so the matters pertaining to this life? And again, I say, it's not arrogant to declare this is what we know to be true from God's word. And it's not arrogant to say this is what we know to be good according to God. God's vision of the good life for us, which he gives us in his word, is life. And it is life-giving. And Satan is the father of lies. So who are we following? Who are we living for when we participate in lies? We affirm them. We endorse them. We repeat them. Who are we following? God, in whom there is no shadow or turning, or Satan? And are we giving life when we affirm lies, or are we bringing more death into the world? Now, don't get me wrong. If you tell people a contradictory thing when they believe a lie and you're telling them the truth, they might react very badly and they might say, you are causing me to feel bad and so you are bad. And what we would say is, as Christians, the reason you feel bad could be because, not that I'm bad, but what you're doing is bad and what you're saying is wrong. That could be guilt and shame. And I don't want you to feel guilty or ashamed either. Don't camp out there. But the way you can have a right standing and confidence is to repent, to confess your error and your sin and to repent. That is to turn away from it. If you do what is good, won't you be rewarded? Won't you have a blessing? Won't that go well for you? That's what we want as Christians. That's what we want for you because we love you. We're telling you that's not correct. That's not true. That's not good. That will hurt you. That breaks shalom. That breaks peace between you and God. That breaks peace between you and your fellow man. We're trying to restore peace here. We're trying to make peace, seek peace and pursue it when we say, here's the way, walk you in it. But moving on, Ron DeSantis is one kind of conservative and Republican in this country right now. There is a different kind of Republican, more moderate, readier to cut a deal and to compromise. I would say Governor Bill Lee of Tennessee on the issue of gun rights and gun control is displaying a more moderate kind of republicanism, a more moderate kind of conservatism, the authenticity of which is open to question. Chase Smith over at the Epoch Times published a piece April 15th, updated April 16th, in-depth red flag or ERPO, some Tennessee Republicans seek rebrand, but face opposition from within and gun rights groups. Chase writes, as Tennessee Governor Bill Lee calls on the state legislature to propose an enhanced order of protection law, Democrats, media, and gun rights groups have said the governor's order of protection law essentially amounts to a red flag law, something many Republicans have said is a non-starter in the bright red state. It's a red flag law, and the danger here is not just will Democrats be upset, will they continue to throw tantrums and call you ugly things if you don't do this, Governor Lee. There's also the danger of if you do give them 
what they want here. What are you setting up? What are the unintended consequences, perhaps, in terms of our right to keep and bear arms? If all it takes is saying, I believe this person is a danger to themselves or others, potentially, don't we put ourselves on very shaky footing when it comes to due process? That's the big concern with red flag laws. No crime has been committed. See, there's already laws on the books with regards to if somebody has committed a crime or threatened to commit a crime. There are already laws on the books for those kinds of situations. If someone has threatened physical violence up to and including deadly force against someone else using their firearms, there are already laws on the books. But if you just say somebody appears to be a danger to themselves or others, are Democrats not ready to pounce and say every Republican, every conservative is a danger to themselves and others? That's the Pandora's box that gets opened here when you start saying, okay, we'll give them that. We'll give them that. That's not all they want. They want so, so much more. Really what they want is the abolishment of the Second Amendment to the Bill of Rights, the United States Constitution. What they want is common citizens not to be able to own firearms without express permission. And that's a dangerous place. That's a dangerous place to be. Just look at what's been happening over the last week in Chicago. If you do, you will see innocent people being beaten by angry mobs and who knows what they're angry about really truly, but you'll see the governor doing what? You'll see the mayor of Chicago doing what about it? Perhaps saying, well, we don't affirm this. This is not so good. But the mayor-elect of Chicago, that their next mayor has come out publicly saying, we need to understand, we need to have empathy for these hundreds of Chicago young people who are committing violent acts against innocent people to promote social justice, to promote, I would say, revolution. And gun control is already there in full force in Chicago. And is this perhaps a consequence of that? I would say yes. People are less likely to do the kinds of things that we have seen images of and heard audio of and read stories about coming out of Chicago when there's a reasonable chance, a high probability that the innocent people they would molest or murder are capable of defending themselves. And that's a self-evident fact. In fact, it's baked into the Second Amendment to the Constitution. This is necessary for the maintenance of a free state, of a free people. We are the government And we cannot be the government if we surrender our right to protect ourselves from abuse and slaughter by roving bands of young people who have been told by activist teachers, leftists in academia and in the media that they have a right to do this and it's justified if it brings about social justice. But there are other kinds of politicians in the U.S. besides the Ron DeSantis or Governor Lee types. You also have Joe Manchin, who is a Democrat from West Virginia, Senator Joe Manchin. John Rigolizzo reports for the Daily Wire April 18th, slammed the Biden administration's new EPA rules around electric vehicles and tailpipe emissions in a statement Tuesday. Manchin blasted the EPA's radical regulations plan 
intended to boost EV sales beginning in 2030 and accelerating in 2032. Manchin said the EPA's ambitious goal of ensuring that 67% of new cars sold will be all electric was market manipulation and a Trojan horse to increase America's reliance on China for critical minerals. He urged Congress to overturn the rules. And kudos to Joe Manchin. He's exactly right. This increases our reliance, our dependence on all our vulnerability to China. You want to talk about people being treated like animals or animals being treated like people, look no farther than the Chinese Communist Party and what they do to political dissidents. Forced organ harvesting of living men and women, reportedly, allegedly, rumor has it, in some cases, to keep leaders of the Chinese Communist Party looking healthy and vibrant as long as possible. You just take organs from political opponents and literally put them into your own body. That's a kind of cannibalism, by the way. And it's monstrous and it's barbaric and it's evil. That's the word for it, ladies and gentlemen. It's evil. That's a biblical category. And I'm not arrogant or haughty when I say it. I'm being clear. That's evil. And we do not want to be here in the United States of America dependent on communist China for our transportation system or for anything, actually. We should not be dependent on them, particularly when it looks like we are going to go to war with them over Taiwan. We can't afford to be dependent on our enemies. Or how would it be if this kind of a thing had been done with Nazi Germany in the run-up to World War II? Hey, we're going to make our economy dependent on you, Adolf Hitler. Oh, wait. Yeah, keep sending us... uh, essential items, essential manufactured goods, while we go to war with you. What's Adolf Hitler going to do? He's going to say, no, actually. That's one of the key ways that you defeat an enemy is you go after their supply lines. Actually, you attack their supply chain so that they can't keep their troops fed and clothed and housed and armed. That's one of the ways you defeat an enemy is you cut off their supply lines and then you just wait them out. And on a national and international level, this administration, the Biden administration is making it extraordinarily easy for China to cut off our supply lines. And they don't even have to come into our territory to do it. They just have to stop sending the ships to our ports. That's all. That's easy. It couldn't possibly be easier. And for that matter, too, they could send us all their defects if they wanted to undermine us. Oh, yeah, we'll send you a shipment of defective products because we're going to keep the good ones. And joke's on you. We're extracting your wealth, making you dependent. And when these things are needed most, they will fail. And then we have you. This is dangerous. This is extraordinarily dangerous and irresponsible and maybe even possibly a betrayal intentionally to bring about the kind of change globally that the Democrats want. But it's not all Joe Manchin's on the left, as is clear, because we see what the Biden administration is doing. You also have the more radical Democrats who control the Democratic Party. Courtney Wheel Over at The Blaze writes, April 18th, 
formerly expelled Tennessee Dems lead yet another takeover of state capital, power of the people. They were expelled and then immediately reinstated by their constituents in their communities, and they're right back at it. Speaking of publicity stunts, we see photos and video from Tennessee's state capital and their second set of demonstrations where they bring in a child's coffin to make their point. They bring in a child's coffin as their prop. How about we start bringing in children's coffins and taking over state capitals on the issue of abortion or transgenderism? No? What, what do you think the media would say? What do you think Democrats would say if we did that as conservatives, as Republicans? You know exactly what they would say. They would say we are insurrectionists. They would say that we are seditionists. They would say that we are traitors. But there is a double standard being applied to these Democrats because the ends justify the means. Because truth is not a priority and it's not a value. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They just want power. They just want control. They don't want gun control first and foremost. They want total control over every aspect of your life and over the whole planet. And they will do more of this, particularly if we have Governor Bill Lee types rewarding their bad behavior. They will do more of this unless you get somebody who's willing to be clear and decisive like Ron DeSantis. And that's why I say, again, accusations of arrogance or haughtiness or being contentious have to be carefully evaluated in this day and age, particularly when they just so happen to always be leveled at conservatives and Republicans and Christians. And when I say carefully evaluated, I mean, don't just say, ah, I'm a conservative and therefore I'm being asked these questions or challenged on these points because I'm a conservative. And on the other hand, you don't say, well, I'm a Christian and therefore anytime I am treated in a mean way, it's because I'm a Christian. Well, we shouldn't do that, right? Sometimes you might get treated in a way that's not friendly because you weren't doing what was good and you weren't saying what was true or you were saying it in an obnoxious, rude way. That's a possibility, whether you're a conservative politically or you're a Christian. And I would say, by and large, in this day, the two overlap quite neatly. There, There is some of what it means to be a Christian that is not conservative per se, or we wouldn't call it that typically, and vice versa. There are plenty of people who are conservatives who are not Christians, and they're not synonymous. But either way, when I say carefully evaluated, I mean, don't just dismiss it out of hand over differences of that kind. Also, don't uncritically believe every accusation, every characterization of how people who believe that there is such a thing as right and wrong and that it's not a new thing. It's not It's not a place where we innovate, where we just totally overhaul to get with the times. You know, the people who are saying, well, this is what's been true and what's been good and what's been right for thousands of years, and they're pushing back on attempts to redefine and upend and challenge all that we know to be good and true and right, those people, when they are accused of being arrogant or haughty or troublemakers, it's possible that they could be, but it shouldn't just be assumed one way or the other. 
A helpful question to consider in light of all of this is, what are the seven things God hates? GotQuestions.org has a page answering this question. I'll include a link in the description for this podcast episode. But their answer is, the seven things God hates are a catalog of sins summed up in Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. While these aren't the only sins that should be avoided, they do sum up most of the wicked things condemned by God. The seven things God hates are the sins that deal with the deep heart motives of the individual. The writer of Proverbs points the finger straight at our hearts and our sinful thought processes. And just briefly, we'll run through what these are. First, arrogant or haughty eyes. Next, a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked schemes. Feet that are quick to rush into evil. False witnesses who pour out lies. A man who stirs up dissension among brothers. These are the seven things that God hates. He's not just passively in a stoic way, not happy about them or like, ah, it's not my favorite. No, he hates these things. And all of these are deeply personal items. I mean, when was the last time you looked at somebody and you said, man, I just hate their eyes. I hate their eyes. I hate the way they look with their eyes. I hate the expression in their eyes. I hate it. Lying tongue. So it's not just the lie itself that God hates. It's the tongue itself. It is insofar as out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the tongue, James tells us, is a restless evil. It's the tongue itself that the lies come from, even, that God hates. That intention to deceive others, employed to flatter a friend, as Got Question says, or to impugn the character of a brother. A lying tongue is at root when we are told to not bear false witness against our neighbor, to not spread a false report. A lying tongue is what does it. Hands that shed innocent blood. This is talking about murder. And it's not, by the way, contingent on what weapon you use. You can use anything, but you have to use your hands in order to use that thing. So it's the hands. So follow me for a moment here, because we were just talking about Democrats storming Tennessee's Capitol building to enact gun control. You know what you actually need is hand control and self-control. It's not the guns, first and foremost. It's the hands that shed innocent blood that we need to control. And insofar as the hands are connected to arms, connected to torsos, in which hearts and minds are connected to those hands, what we really have a problem with when it comes to gun violence or homicides that involve firearms, what we really have a problem with is hands that shed innocent blood. Jesus says, Got Questions reads, that anyone who is angry with someone else unreasonably without offering room for forgiveness commits a sin equivalent to murder. Matthew 5, 21 to 24, 1 John 3, 15. You can both read those and apply them to this question of violence and 
assault, and murder. But the hands are all that is needed. Again, with the angry mobs of lawless teenagers and 20-somethings in Chicago, they don't have to have a gun to murder some innocent man or woman. And we don't let them off the hook if they just use their fists and their feet. A heart that devises wicked schemes. So it's not just the wicked schemes that God hates. There's this common saying that's not actually a Bible verse, by the way, that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. We should hate the sin but love the sinner. That's not a Bible verse. God, at least, hates the heart that devises wicked schemes. He hates the hands that shed innocent blood. He hates the lying tongue itself. He hates the arrogant, haughty eyes. He hates the feet that are quick to rush into evil. So what do you have here? You have several parts of a human body that are put to evil purposes. And they are hated because they are put to evil purposes. A false witness who pours out lies, though. Now, now we're talking about the whole person, really. The witness is a person. It's not just the testimony of the person that is hated. It's the person giving the testimony that is false, that is designed to absolve a guilty person we know to be guilty, or is designed to condemn an innocent person we know to be innocent. God hates the false witness. And then lastly, a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. GotQuestions.org says brothers are created by God to live in unity. Psalm 133.1, 1 Thessalonians 4.9, believers are brothers and sisters since they have one father, God, and one brother, Jesus Christ. The church is also the bride of Christ, Ephesians 5.25-27. In many situations, strife among brothers and even within the church seems unavoidable, but anyone who purposely causes disruption to peace in the body of Christ will displease God above all, since that person gives room for others to sin and offer himself to sin further. 1 John 2, 9-11, 4, 19-21. Moreover, Jesus pronounced a great blessing on peacemakers, the privilege to be called sons of God, Matthew 5, 9. Now, in our day, again, this is a common accusation against conservatives and Christians that we are the ones stirring up the dissension among brothers. And this is nothing new. We find it in the New Testament as well, where in the New Testament, what is it that is said about the Christians when they are hauled before the city council in Thessalonica? These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. What is the charge that is leveled at Jesus and his disciples in the New Testament? They are troublemakers. They are causing disruption. They are stirring up the people. That's the claim. And if you leave out very important details and facts and the reason, I suppose you could say that's true, that they are stirring up trouble, kind of, but then again, also not objectively. Because what are they actually saying? Is it their fault that an angry mob wants to stone them to death? for instance, is that their fault because the mob is angry at them for saying what they've said, doing what they're doing? Or does that turn the whole of the New Testament and Old Testament on its head when we think that way? Does that get it exactly backwards? And do we not see quite a lot of getting these things exactly backwards in our day? Exactly backwards. The person who displays the greatest amount of emotion, we suppose, must be right. And if they claim to have been wronged or oppressed, the more upset they are, the more seriously we take them. I would say yes. 
Now we come to the main topic of this podcast episode, which is How to Win an Argument, An Ancient Guide to the Art of Persuasion by Marcus Tullius Cicero, translated by James M. May. Publisher's Summary at Audible.com. All of us are faced countless times with the challenge of persuading others, whether we're trying to win a trivial argument with a friend or convince our coworkers about an important decision. Instead of relying on untrained instinct and often failing as a result, we'd win more arguments if we learned the timeless art of verbal persuasion or rhetoric. How to win an argument gathers the rhetorical wisdom of Cicero from across his works and combines it with passages from his legal and political speeches to show his powerful techniques in action. The result is an enlightening and practical introduction to the secrets of persuasive speaking and writing, including strategies that are just as effective in today's offices, schools, courts, and political debates as they were in the Roman Forum. How to Win an Argument addresses proof based on rational argumentation, character, and emotion, the parts of speech, the plain, middle, and grand styles, how to persuade no matter what audience or circumstances you face, and more. Astonishingly relevant, this anthology of Cicero's rhetorical and oratorical wisdom will be enjoyed by anyone who ever needs to win arguments and influence people. Copyright 2016, Princeton University Press. Publisher, 2016 Highbridge, a division of recorded books. This is not a long book. This is not long to read. Three hours, three minutes on one-time speed. I listened on double speed, double time. It was great. This was really, really great. And no less because it was short, but I would call it compact. I would call this very efficient with language. Right to the point. Here's how to be persuasive. And in that, the book itself is persuasive on how to be persuasive. It is consistent with what it preaches in being clear, in being direct, in giving examples, in laying things out in an orderly, easy to follow way. Now, I want to comment on my reasons for reading this book briefly, because argumentation in our day gets a bad rap. Arguments, as we call them, are contentious, upsetting conflicts. And arguments, when we say people have gotten into them, what we mean is they were fighting, they were being mean, they were upset with each other, they were angry with each other, they said hurtful things to each other. Now they're offended with each other. Now they're upset. Now they're not speaking because they got into an argument. Or if they're dating, we might say, well, they broke up. They had an argument. Now they're separated. Or if they're really close friends, or they have been, and they get in an argument, maybe, eh, we used to be friends. We're not friends anymore. We're not close anymore. Proverbs 18.19 would tell us, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. But in the preceding verse, we see casting the lot ends quarrels and separates strong opponents. Is that what we should do when we have a disagreement? Should we just flip a coin? Should we just roll a dice? Should we cast lots? How many would prefer that over 
arguments that go nowhere and just go around and around in circles. It would certainly be more efficient with our time and our emotional energy to be sure that would be an advantage. But on the other hand, what if it were possible for us to speak peaceably to each other and to be reasonable, to be open to reason, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry? How would it be if instead of being puffed up, being wise in our own eyes, being uncorrectable, hating anybody who would correct us on any point, how would it be if instead we prioritized wisdom, getting wisdom, if that marked us, if that's what we were known for, if that's what was a characteristic of us, is that we were wise. And therefore, when someone corrected us, which can happen when somebody is wise, they can be wise and also incorrect. But how you know they're wise is not whether they're correct and everything, but whether they are open to correction. If someone thinks they're wise and they are not open to correction, then they are actually just wise in their own eyes. And that is, I think, of a piece with being haughty, really truly. But we have to understand what it means to be arrogant in order to figure out whether that shoe fits. If we're called arrogant, or if we think someone else is arrogant, how do we know? Is it all just subjective? Is it all just a matter of perspective? Is it a question of taking a vote? Is it a question of what's convenient at the time? Or are there criteria that have to be met before we say that somebody is really and truly demonstrably arrogant? I think here of British people and the way that British people can talk. French people, actually, for that matter, as well, in different ways. But the French have a reputation for putting their noses up in the air and literally looking down on somebody who is even at their own level or taller than they are. They have a way of making their eyes into narrow slits and turning their nose up and jutting their jaw out and being very dismissive of anybody who would disagree with or differ from them or who does not meet their standard. And so there's a reputation that the French have for being haughty and condescending. The British as well can, not all Brits, but they can have something of a reputation, just even a British accent. When we like it, when we like what the British accent is saying, we say, we say that it adds credibility to the statement. Have an American say something and then have a Brit say the exact same thing. And all of a sudden, we think that the same words were very intellectual in the one case or very ignorant and backwards and hickish in the other. You get somebody from the deep south of the U.S. perhaps explaining Einstein's theory of relativity versus a Brit who has been born in a wealthy, affluent, influential part of that country, England, and you will get two very different responses to the same message. And Cicero gets to this. He talks about that, but he doesn't say that there's a one-size-fits-all way of making an argument or delivering it. There are, like the publisher's summary explains, 
plain, middle, and grand styles of giving a speech. So think formal and informal, but then he adds a third category, which would be in the middle. So think hot, mild, and medium sauce. You can be formal, and sometimes the occasion calls for that. A wedding, for instance. A funeral, for instance, is a more formal occasion. But then if you have someone's very close relative give a eulogy at the funeral, it doesn't have to be formal. The preacher or the pastor conducting the ceremony maybe should be more formal. But the widow or widower, the adult son or daughter, the brother or the sister, giving a eulogy is forgiven for speaking in a more candid, more personal way. Well, so also, if you're talking about big ideas and you're officiating over some important national ceremony, you don't talk like you would if you were ordering a hot dog from a street vendor. You don't because it doesn't fit. And vice versa, if you're ordering a hot dog from a street vendor, you do not clear your throat and carry your lectern right up to their stand and wax formal. People will think you are ridiculous because you are being ridiculous if you do that, if you mix those up. But in an argument, style matters. How your audience will feel when they hear you say what you say matters. Your character as the speaker matters, is relevant. Even just the character of your presentation, how you treat others in your speech, how you treat the subject matter in your speech speaks to character. Also, if you're debating with somebody, the character of the person you are debating against does matter. The other side, having been guilty of crimes, it being known that they're guilty of crimes in the past or doing highly unethical things, is relevant to establishing whether they are trustworthy, whether we should believe them when they make certain claims we haven't verified ourselves. Also, there is the logic Are we rational? Are we being analytical? It's interesting to me that before reading this book, I had always heard the contrast between more rational on the one hand, more emotional on the other hand, but there's a third category that actually balances out a proper treatment of these things or perception of these things. Yes, Logic is important. Yes, emotion is important. Also, character is important. And what do we find? If we look for it, we find that when someone mishandles the truth, they outright lie, or they're highly manipulative, or they leave out certain details entirely, we find that what stays with our impression of all else that they would say is what it says about their character, that they would lie or that they would be sloppy with their handling of the truth. That stays with us. Even if we don't know whether what they said is true, but it doesn't fit, and we know that it doesn't fit, there's a meanness to it, that affects our emotions. We feel off. Something feels off about what they've said, even if we can't quite put our finger on it. And the the effective speaker, the effective persuader or debater or rhetorician has to attend to all three of these things. And actually too, this is relevant 
to talking about arrogance and haughtiness, when we get to reputation, what's the quickest, surest way to destroy somebody socially and politically, malign their character? And that's why do not bear false witness against your neighbor is one of the Ten Commandments, because you can destroy somebody in their relationships, whether family relationships or friendships or business relationships or political affiliations, you can destroy them. If you bring a false charge that is believed and stands, you can destroy a person that way. Why is that? Because they operate dependent on trust. And if they have violated the public trust, well, then they should be punished or people should distance themselves from such a person. But if they have not violated the public trust and it is claimed that they have falsely, if they are operating from good faith and they are actually trying to love God and love their neighbor, how can they not answer a false charge? How can they not respond to the accusation by presenting the truth? And then what will we do? If somebody is maligned and ugly things are said about them and they defend their reputation, they defend their handling of the truth or their treatment of other people, they defend their character and their reputation, do we then say, aha, well, that proves that you are arrogant because you're sticking up for yourself. See, if you were truly humble, then you would say nothing as your character is destroyed publicly for everybody to hear. Is that what we are called to in God's word? Is it? Are we called to prove our humility by not caring what is said about us, what is claimed about us, what we are said to have done, who we are said to be. Is that what we are called to? In recent years, I have seen this again and again, that people who were opposed to the candidacy of Donald Trump, for instance, on the basis of his character, by the way, note, his character was all important, we were told, to the people who opposed him, didn't want him to win the presidency. And then when he was in, they didn't want him to succeed in anything he was trying to do. Everything needed to be scandalized, portrayed as sinful, wicked, evil, corrupt, malicious. What if, my friends, some of the people who said our reputations are so very important, as Christians in particular, but also as conservatives, because they are a license to operate socially, what if those same people change their whole paradigm when you come to a question of conservatives defending their track record, their individual track record? Does the standard of judgment change if it would actually vindicate those who have been maligned? On the one hand, we say character is all important if we're talking about destroying this person. This person's reputation for having good character. It's all important. It's terribly relevant. Nothing could be more relevant to the public trust and whether we believe this person or allow them to operate in these roles that they have been or were aspiring to. Nothing could be more relevant than their character. After something has gone very, very badly, then we start to look at their character. And we say, ah, there were signs all along. I knew it. I knew it. Nobody would listen to me. See, we never should have voted for this guy. We never should have put this person in charge. We never should have been entrusted such and such to them. Never should have trusted them. But what about when a person has a false charge leveled against them and they try to defend themselves? Then we say, your reputation is not all that important. Don't 
take it so seriously. If you do take it seriously, that's proof that you are being arrogant. And now we've actually brought it full circle again. And we've admitted even in that, that your character is all important. Because if you have the character of an arrogant person, then you shouldn't be trusted. You shouldn't be listened to. You shouldn't be taken seriously. Go back to the drawing board. Come back again when you are not arrogant anymore. But if it's all subjective, or if it's a matter of counting noses, or if we just listen to the person who shows the strongest display of emotion, when a charge of arrogance is leveled, how can one defend themselves against the charge of arrogance? If even their defense will be taken as proof that they are arrogant. It's a heads I win, tails you lose trap. And it makes it impossible to function. It makes it impossible to conduct any business whatsoever. And ladies and gentlemen, very often that is exactly the point. It's not a good faith charge. It is malicious. It is an intent to destroy. To punish, perhaps. But when there is no coming back from it, there's no roadmap to peace. There's no, if you would just stop this or if you just start doing that you would just change this up, then we could get along. And that's all I'm asking for. And there's none of that. And it's just, this is who you are. This is who you've always been. This is who you always will be. That is murderous, actually. So how do you defend against it? How do you protect yourself against it? One is to take into consideration that in order to be persuasive, not to persuade the person who would slander you, but to persuade those who are on the sidelines, who would listen one way or the other and act accordingly, who would either withdraw from you forevermore or come to your defense as well, speaking on their knowledge and experience of your character, your interactions, you should pay attention to what Cicero says here when he says rational argument, character, and emotion are critical to being persuasive. You should read Cicero on whether the style of speaking fits the occasion. You should listen to Cicero explain the importance of knowing the truth and being familiar with the truth and being able to articulate the truth appropriately, fittingly, in a timely manner, in an effective way. Otherwise, why do we have the ability to speak and what are we saying about its utility? We are saying that truth is whatever is convenient, God forbid, or that virtue is only a value when it's convenient, God forbid, or that we will admit all possibilities so long as we like the way we feel when they come to be or when they are established and unchanged. And for the Christian, that can't be. That just cannot be. The Christian cannot relate to the truth and the communication of the truth in such a slapdash mercenary way because it's self-indulgent and it's foolish and it's wicked and it's not loving towards God and it's not loving towards our fellow man, which we are commanded to understand all the other commands of God as being summed up in. So in closing, and I do need to run, in closing, I would encourage you, do read How to Win an Argument by Cicero. Translated by James M. May, it was a very engaging book. It was very easy to read, very easy to follow, chock full of important insights and balance because 
as I said, you don't want to think it either matters that I appeal to emotions or it matters that I am reasonable and reasoned and presenting facts. Both are important. And there's also the question of character, which is all important to the kinds of feelings you will inspire or provoke on the one hand, and on the other hand, how you will treat the truth and how other people will expect you to treat the truth, whether they will trust you or not. And that trust is the basis for every kind of relationship. Every kind of relationship depends on trust. If there's no trust, there's no relationship. That's not what we want. That's not what we're called to. It's not where we want to be. So do read it. Do check it out. Study it. Contemplate it. Put it into practice today. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.